Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I intend to cover in this audio John chapter 14, verses 16 through 31. That's the second half of Jesus' farewell discourse. I covered the first half in verses 1 through 15 in the previous audio. And just so we can catch up on the context, I'll briefly read to you going through John chapter 14 what Jesus had talked to his disciples about. First of all, he said, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. Then Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Then Philip asked him to show Philip the Father. And Jesus said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And if you can't believe in the words that I say, believe the works that I do. Then Jesus starts talking about works. He says, greater works than I have done, you will do. Because he goes to the Father, goes to the Father in order to give the Holy Spirit. And then he says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do. Again, that refers to works that in, in the world uh, that will be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. You ask for them, you will get it done. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So that is the context. And you can see now that in the second part of the chapter... In this farewell discourse, Jesus is going to promise the Holy Spirit to his disciples, which of course he's, he's going to come at Pentecost. So that's where we are. And so let's begin with John 14, verses 16 through 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him, because he remains with you and will be in you. Let's start, first of all, with Counselor, capital C, Counselor. In my Holman Christian Study Bible translation, the King James has Comforter, which I think is an extraordinarily inapt translation, because it sounds like some kind of a social worker, a grief counselor, holding you by the hand and wiping your tears away because Jesus has died. That's not what the meaning of the word is. It has a legal connotation to it it means advocate as your legal your lawyer is your advocate he advocates in court for you first john 2 1 my little children i am writing you these things so that you may not sin but if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the father jesus christ so jesus christ is an advocate the holy spirit's an advocate too he's an advocate in the sense that if someone accuses you before god i.e satan and says this person is a lousy low down rotten sinner well, the Holy Spirit will advocate for you and say, no, no, he's not a low-down, rotten sinner. He is a new creation. He is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh and apple of my eye and leave him alone. And Father, please do not condemn him for his sins. They've already been forgiven. I've nailed, I've put them all into a document. A statement of ordinances violated, sanctions and so forth. And I've nailed him to the cross and he's no longer guilty. So that's what the idea of advocate is. There are other translations. It's hard to get it into English, actually. The NIV Study Bible points out that it's it means attorney, as in counselor for the defense, but it also has a, a, a shade of meaning that's broader than that. It refers to any person who helps someone in trouble with the law. Well, still, it's the idea of helping somebody before the law, the law of a righteous, offended God whose justice has been violated. That's what, That's who the Holy Spirit is. It's not a psychologist. It's not a sociologist, not a social worker. It's more like a lawyer. Now, some other translations. NIV Study Bible translates it as helper. Clark, Adam Clark, translates it as advocate or counselor, which is closer to the meaning, the legal meaning. Clark also mentions patron or mediator, which I don't think is very good. It's interesting that one of the Jewish names for the Messiah was counselor. So Jesus was an advocate or counselor, even as the Holy Spirit was. And I've already mentioned in 1 John 2, 1, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is called an advocate with the Father. So Jesus and the Holy Spirit are both our advocates before the Father. We don't need to stand before him trembling and quivering with fear because of our sins. We, need, we can stand before him with an open face, confidently, uprightly, knowing that we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus and another advocate, the Holy Spirit. We don't need to worry. Our sins are forgiven. Now, notice that when Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor, the Holy Spirit is a gift from the Father. The Holy Spirit that you get when you get saved and when you get filled with the Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit is a gift from the Father. It's not something you work for. Now, notice in verse 16, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another comforter to be with you. That is a perfect verse 
to knock oneness Pentecostals or other Unitarians in the head with. It's a perfect verse that proves the Trinity. And I, Jesus, there's the Son, will ask the Father, there's the Father, and he will give you another counselor, there's the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right there in that verse 16. The other classic verse is when Jesus was baptized, we have Jesus was receiving baptism, that's one person. The second person is when the the, the Holy Spirit, like a dove, fell on his head, that's the second person. And the third person is when the Father spoke in a voice from heaven. They weren't three modes of the same person. They were three different persons. That's for all of you who are theologically oriented. This is a Trinitarian verse. Verse 17, the advocate is called the spirit of truth. Now, truth is associated with all three persons of the Trinity. The NIV Study Bible sort of has a mini Bible study on this, stating that. And, and, and the Study Bible lists the scriptures that associate truth with the Father, and scriptures that associate truth with the Son, and scriptures that associate truth with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to go through them right now. How about the Father? Is he associated with truth? Before I do this, let's define what truth is. I was just reading a college textbook on logic, and it it was talking about how do we establish the truth with truth tables and so forth. And and he said, you know, philosophers debate about truth. We're just going to take it as a primitive, as a a basic presupposition. We all know what truth is. (laughs) I thought, well, yeah, most people do know what truth is. There's actually two definitions of truth. One is the facts that you believe comport with what's actually really in existence. For example, did you do your homework? Yes, I did. Well, the facts of doing your homework comport with what you say, so that's truth. Another idea of truth is reality. For example, is that truly a pond that I see on the highway, or is that a mirage? So truth, in that sense, means does it really exist? Well, either way, are you making a proposition that comports with facts, or are you talking about something that really exists? Either way, the truth, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are truth. Let's look at John, let's look at scriptures that associate truth with the Father. John 4, verses 23 through 24. But an hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. There, the true worshipers, that means the real worshipers, those who aren't fake worshipers, those who aren't legalistic worshipers going through the rituals in the temple, but the true actual worshipers who really love God, when the true worshipers will worship the Father, how? In spirit and in truth. In other words, their worship is true worship. It's real worship. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In other words, you must really, truly worship God as a spirit, spiritually, through the spirit who lives in you, and not through external conformity to rituals and such. So the Father is called, we worship the Father, how? In truth. We worship him in truth, leaving the spirit. We're used to hearing that phrase in spirit and truth. Just leave the spirit out. We worship the Father in truth. We truly worship him. Psalm 31, 5, into your hand I entrust my spirit. You redeem me, Lord God of truth the truth, reality, the way things really are. Pontius Pilate said, what is truth? The truth was Jesus. Isaiah 65, 16, whoever is blessed in the land will be blessed by the God of truth. We don't hear God call that much. We hear Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, and the God Rapha who heals me, I think, uh, things like that. El Shaddai, the many-breasted one. We hear all kinds of names of God, but we don't hear people say, talk too much about the God of truth, but that's, they hear scripture, Psalms and Isaiah, that talk about God being a God of truth. Isaiah 65:16 again, whoever is blessed in the land will be blessed by the God of truth, and whoever swears in the land will swear by the God of truth. Now what this means is what you say is going to comport with reality. You say something and reality is going to match what you say. And God is that way. When God speaks something by golly, the reality he speaks is going to come to pass. Reality will match what God says. All right, so that's the Father is associated with truth. How about the Son? John 14, 6. In this same farewell discourse, earlier, last audio, Jesus told him, I am the way. I forgot who he's speaking to there. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's speaking to doubting Thomas, or Thomas, the apostle. That's who he's speaking to there. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life took a while for Thomas to realize the truth. Hey, Jesus is resurrected. All right, that's the Father and the Son are truth. 
How about the Holy Spirit? John 14, 17, he is the spirit of truth. That's the verse that we're reading now. John 15, 26, next chapter. When the counselor comes, that's the Holy Spirit, the one I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. In other words, you will know all the reality that you need to know and all the self-deceptions and all the little intellectual fantasy lands you've built around all the little phony, fake dreams you have about how reality is, it's all going to be swept away and you'll know what truth is. And all the lies of the devil and all the stupid, idiotic, vain philosophies of the world will be shoveled right into the garbage can and you will see clearly who the truth is and what the truth is. All right, let's look at verse 17 well, before, well, yeah, let's look at verse 17. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. And here is that great distinction. Those things that are spiritually discerned can only be discerned by spirit, which means that only those who have the Holy Spirit in them, because he remains with you and will be in you, because the Holy Spirit is in you, that way you can understand who God is. But if you are in the world, you are unable to receive him, the Holy Spirit, because the world doesn't see the Holy Spirit and doesn't know the Holy Spirit. So you want to know truth? you got to have the Holy Spirit. If you want to be a philosopher and spend all of your waking hours cogitating and thinking about what the truth is, what reality is, you are wasting your time. You don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not going to know what the truth is. Notice that this counselor, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, or advocate to be with you forever. How long is forever? That word is actually a little bit ambiguous. In the Old Testament, a lot of times it means for a long time. But you can go by the context. Uh, sometimes it means eternally forever, as in from right now to eternity future. Obviously, it doesn't refer to the eternity past because you don't, there is a certain point before which you don't have the Holy Spirit. But once you've got the Holy Spirit, forever means from that point to forever in the future. That would be a good verse to hear an Arminian explain, well, you know, how does somebody get saved and, and the Holy Spirit's going to be with him forever, and then all of a sudden he's not there anymore because somebody walked away from the faith. I don't, I'm sure they've got an answer for that. I don't know what it is, but I'm sure they do. But I think it's much, more easy, it's much easier to say, hey, once you get saved, you're always saved, to use that offensive formula. Now, the NIV Study Bible points out that verse 17 begins an important series of teachings on the Holy Spirit. So now we're in Holy Spirit territory, John 14, 15, and 16. John 15 and 16 are, is the discourse that Jesus gave the disciples on the way to Gethsemane on the road. So let's take a sneak peek at some of those verses about the Holy Spirit. John 14, 26, which is just a few verses ahead of where we are now. But the counselor, the counselor of the Holy Spirit, the Father will send him in my name will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. So now, not only is the Holy Spirit an advocate, he is a reminder. He reminds us of things that Jesus taught in the, when he was there in the flesh. John 15:26. When the Counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So the Holy Spirit explains things about Jesus, talks about, gives witness to Jesus. John 16, 7 through 15. Nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the counsel will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. Jesus, this is a theme that we're going to pick up in this passage, in our current passage, too, is that the, people, the disciples are going to be very upset when Jesus gets killed, and he's trying to say, no, this is a good thing, not a bad thing, because the Holy Spirit's going to come. Verse 8, John 16, when he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. So there's another duty and function of the Holy Spirit, to convict sinners about their sin and to convict sinners about their need for righteousness and to convict sinners that there's going to be judgment if you don't get saved. Verse 9 about sin because they do not believe in me, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you will no longer see me, and about judgment because the rule of this world has been judged. I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. I mean, you know, this is a lot of powerful stuff here about the Holy Spirit. It's all for us. He will also declare to you what he is to come. See, even, uh, he will even show you a little bit about the future. He will glorify me. He will glorify Jesus because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. He's going to teach you about Jesus. Everything the Father has is mine. That is why I told you that he, when he takes 
that he takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. The Holy Spirit will take from what is Jesus and declare it to us Christians. So, having said all that, let me go back and point out to you in verse 17 something I've already mentioned, but I want to mention again. You know him, know the Holy Spirit, because he remains with you and will be in you. Now, that little word in seems like a little tiny preposition, sort of inconsequential preposition, but actually it's very, very important. It means in union with, in union with. So the Holy Spirit will be in union with you. Now, this doesn't mean that you become the Holy Spirit and that your humanity is lost. It just means you're tightly united to the Holy Spirit. You're not divorced from the Holy Spirit like a deist who says, well, God's up there in the heaven. He's doing his stuff and it hasn't got anything to do with me. No, he's with you. He's, he's closely united with you. The NIV study Bible has an interesting statement here. They say, some think that this in refers to the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. That's when he will be in with you. And my opinion, I'm surprised that everybody doesn't believe that. What else would he be talking about? But even if it does directly refer to the apostles receiving the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, it also applies to all believers, of course. I mean, those apostles aren't different than us. I know a lot of people like to make the distinction, but they, we have the Holy Spirit, they have the Holy Spirit. They, they are, the apostles are distinct in function, but they're not distinct in privilege of having the Holy Spirit. He remains with you and will be in you. It's often said that Westerners tend to emphasize the objectivity of God, the transcendence of God. He's up there, he's out there, and we're not God, and we're lowly worms and so forth. Whereas the Eastern Church talks about apotheosis and the holy, we become little God, we become God and all that kind of stuff. And the balance on that is, no, we don't become God in the sense that our humanity dissolves into the Godhead. No, but on the other hand, God is not so transcendent that he's way up there and has nothing to do with us. It's in the middle. We're, we're not God, but we're closely united with God. And it's something that Christ, every Christian needs to know and is not emphasized enough in the West, especially, in my humble opinion, in Reformed circles. Let's go now to John 14, verses 18 through 19. Jesus is still speaking here. I will not leave you as orphans, not leave you disciples as orphans. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will see me no longer, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. All right, first of all, we need to know, we need to consider what Jesus meant when he says, I am coming to you. Well, the NIV Study Bible says that one option is that this is the coming of the Holy Spirit at the Pentecost. I am coming to you. I don't believe that. I don't believe the NIV Study Bible. Well, they mention that as an option. They mention as another option is, Jesus is coming to them by appearing to them after the resurrection. The NIV Study Bible and Gill point, uh, mentioned that as an option. And I think that's the answer right there. That's what he's talking about. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm coming back to you. You're going to see me again after you suffer the horrible shock of me being crucified on the cross. Some people say, is Jesus coming at the end of time? No, he's talking to the disciples. I am coming to you. Well, I guess he is coming to them at the end of time. At the end of time. But then in the very next verse, he says, in a little while. The context is in a little while. In a little while, the world will see me no longer, but in a little while, you are going to see me. In a little while, that's not the end of the world. Now, there's another possibility. It could mean I am coming to you when you die, and you'll see me face to face as I take you up to heaven. No, that's not what it means. I'm almost sure of this. I'm coming to you in my post-resurrection appearances after I'm resurrected from the dead in those 40 days while I'm still going to be on earth. Jesus, this is not the first time Jesus has mentioned this to them in this final discourse. John 14, 3, If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself so that where I am you may be also. So Jesus is trying to comfort these guys because he knows they're going to be going through a horrible shock when he gets killed. In a little while the world will see me no longer. That's because he's going to be dead in the grave. They're not going to see him anymore. And then when he resurrects, Jesus did show himself to a lot of his apostles. I don't know whether he showed himself to any non-believers, but at any rate, he he, he ascended. I shouldn't say well, he, he, yes, he ascended, and in a, and when he ascended, at least no, the world's not going to see him. They might have seen him after he was resurrected. I don't know, but but 40 days later, when he ascended, the world can't see him anymore, and that's where we are now. The world cannot see Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit how people see Jesus, and this is amazing to me how the Holy Spirit wins people into the kingdom when we can't see Jesus anymore. Lots and lots and lots of believers in the kingdom, even in this age of apostasy, even in this age of unbelief and Darwinism and evolution and queer rights and all this kind of nonsense is going on. No, even in the midst of all that, 
people still follow Jesus. I mentioned that Jesus earlier had said he was coming back. Uh, later, he does says the same thing in John 14, 28. You have heard me tell you I'm going away and I am coming to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. We'll get to that verse in a minute. But Jesus says, I am coming to you. I am coming to you. John 16, 10. So you also have sorrow. This I'm sorry, this is John 16, 22. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will rob you of your joy. So Jesus really knows how to encourage his disciples. He's saying, I'm going to say, don't, I, I, listen, just because I get killed, that doesn't mean I'm not going to see you again. And can you imagine the joy of seeing Jesus after you're convinced that he's dead, those disciples? I mean, that's talking about snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. Now, Jesus says, because I live, you will live too. You could take that spiritually and say, because I live, because I'm resurrected, you will have spiritual life and you'll be born again. John Gill mentions that as an option. But it could also mean you will live, you disciples will live physically as much as me. Now, if that's the case, let's look at what some of the physical options are. It could mean that the disciples won't die when Jesus is killed. Because I live, because I'm resurrected, you will live too, because with my resurrection power, and the Holy Spirit, you're going to live and spread the gospel. Or it could be you will live even beyond the time of my resurrection. You will live all after your continual natural life until you're 70, 60 years old or whatever, and you're going to live too. I don't think that's it because most of the disciples were killed prematurely. John Gill agrees that that's not the proper option. Third option is you will physically live for all eternity after the resurrection, and I believe that's the correct option. Actually, I don't know why I can't refer to spiritual life and ultimate resurrection life, physical glorification. Why well, I can't refer to both of those? Because I live, because I will be resurrected. You're going to live forever, spiritually and physically. Ain't nothing going to... Death, is, death will have no part with you. I mean, think of that. If that's true, why would anybody choose the world with all of its vain glory, its flesh, its transient riches and fame and all the nonsense that's in the world, all the stupidity that's in Hollywood and in the courts and all this in the press. Why would you do that? Compare that to eternal life. You're going to live forever. John 14:20. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. In that day, what day? The day of his resurrection. According to the NIV Study Bible, J.F. Jefferson Fawcett and Brown says it's referring to the time of Pentecost because Jesus is talking about the comfort of come, coming. And that and that could be. But it doesn't matter. It means the resurrection and Pentecost. After all, they're only 50 days apart. So in that time period, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father. So when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you're going to know that Jesus and the Father are one. I am in my Father. I am in union with my Father. You are in union with me, and I am in union with you. So let's look at it this way. If Jesus is in union with us Christians, and we Christians are in union with him, that means when Jesus is in union with the Father, he takes us with him. It's a union of Jesus and Christians, and all of those are in union with the Father. Boy, that's close. That's tight. You are in union with the God who created the universe, and you no longer fear him anymore, and you're no longer shaking your boots when you think about him, because now there's nothing but total love between you, the Father, and you. You who were formerly a nasty, rotten, menstrual rag, a piece of filth, a piece of excrement. Now you are a very child of God, an inheritor of his kingdom. It's not a bad deal. In that day you will know that I am in the Father. Why? Because the resurrection of Christ will produce powerful certainty in the believers, as, as likewise will the falling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Powerful certainty. We're going to know. We're not going to think. We're not going to believe. We're not going to have an opinion. We're going to know that Jesus was in the Father. He was sent by the Father. And we're going to know that we are in Jesus and Jesus is in us. John 14, verse 21. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him and reveal myself to him. Now, I've mentioned this in the previous audio a lot. I won't mention it again. You want to love Jesus, you keep his commands. Love is not just an ooey-gooey feeling, a gushy feeling that we have towards someone, including Jesus. Although we might have those feelings every now and then, that's fine. But basically, the way Jesus constantly expresses his desire for us to love him is to do what he says. 
John 14:15 If you love me you will keep my commands John 14:23 through 24 Jesus answered if anyone loves me he will keep my word that's two verses later my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him the one who doesn't love me will not keep my words John 15:10 If you keep my commands you will remain in my love just as I've kept my father's commands and remain in his love so here we have Jesus as an example does Jesus love the father oh yes now notice the little word also in this verse 21. I also will love him. Also, that means in addition to the Father. The Father's going to love you who keep Jesus' commands. So you want to be loved by Jesus and loved by God the Father? Keep Jesus' commands and God's going to love you. And Jesus will reveal himself to you because the end of the verse says I also will love him the one who keeps my commands and I will reveal myself to him the one who keeps my commands you want to know more about Jesus quit watching the pornography quit neglecting your wife quit embezzling stuff from the company treasury whatever it is that you are doing that might create blockages between knowing what Je you want to know what Je who Jesus is and how to how to to pro to profitably live your life, well then, by golly, obey his commands. Now, of course, you can't com obey his commands in your flesh. You have to have the Holy Spirit to help you obey his commands. You have to have the Holy Spirit to put to death your deeds of your flesh. You don't want to become a legalist, someone who in your flesh is trying to keep God's commands because you'll never do it. You'll fail apart from me. You can do nothing, Jesus said. So let the life of the vine flow through you and they start obeying his commands. Learn how to obey Jesus' commands. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. And Jesus will reveal himself to you. Again, knowledge, most of the problems of people not knowing the truth is not, in a, is not because of intellect. And it's not intellectual problems, it's sin problems. It's will problems. John 7, 17 says, If anyone will, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking from my own authority. So you want to know what, whether what Jesus has said is true? You got to do what you got to will to do what God's will is. That's how you know. It's your will. It's not your head so much. It's your will. That's how you know. If you decide you're gonna will to follow him and love him, he will reveal himself to you and you'll get closer and closer to him. Now, there is something to be guarded against here. It almost sounds like if you keep his commands then Jesus will love you, that almost sounds like a tit for tat. Like a legalistic sort of thing. I gotta, I gotta help little old ladies across the street. Then Jesus will love me. That is not what Jesus means here. After all, Jesus loved us while we were yet sinners. We weren't doing anything to love Jesus while we were sinning before we were saved. But Jesus still loved us, so His love was unconditional, not conditional upon our obedience. In fact, He even loved us before we were even created, before the foundation of the world. So. Obviously, his love for us is not conditioned upon our convenience. But what he's saying is, uh, when you do keep his commands, Jesus and the Father both will love you. Even though he loved you already, you keep in his commands, he will, he will love you some more. Well, I didn't express that very elegantly, but I have a quote from John Gill. It says this, saying the same thing, quote, Christ does not begin to love his people when they begin to love and obey him. Their love and obedience to him spring from his love to them, which love of his towards them was from everlasting. But this phrase, sign, signifies a clear discovery of his love to them, which passeth knowledge. So Gil is saying Jesus already and God already loved you, but when you keep his commands, you have a clearer knowledge of his love for you. And I think that's probably exactly accurate. Now when Jesus says, I will re reveal myself to the one who obeys me, that could mean in a visible way, as in the post-resurrection appearances. I'm going to reveal myself to you. Gill and Clark both, well, Gill denies that. Clark affirms that. That's what Jesus is talking about. I'm going to show myself to you visibly after I, when I come back from the dead. John Gill says, on the other hand, it's a, I'm going to reveal myself in a spiritual manner to you. I think Gill probably is right on that. I, I'm not exactly sure. But at any rate, whether physically or spiritually, Jesus is going to reveal himself to his apostles. An application to us, he's going to reveal himself to us if we love him and keep his commandments. All right, chapter 22, verse 14. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Well, who is this Judas, not Iscariot? That's Jude. Gill and Clark say he was Judas Labaius. I don't know where they get that from. 
these disciples make my eyes glaze over because there's about, I think there's three different lists of them, and every one of them there's a little bit of difference because people had different names. They had uh, nicknames and different and name, Aramaic names and and Hebrew names and all that, so it's c confusing. But let me, I'm going to take the majority opinion here. Jude, his surname was Thaddeus, according to Gill and Clark. He's the same Jude that was Jude the Apostle that wrote the Epistle of Jude in the New Testament canon. He was the half-brother of Jesus, even though the Catholics and the Orthodox don't believe this, but the Protestants believe he's the half-brother of Jesus. So that's who he is. He's Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. He later became an apostle, a New Testament church apostle, as well as one of the original apostles. And he says to Jesus, how is it you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Now, what was he thinking? He was probably thinking that Jesus is going to come back physically, and and, and Jude is thinking, well, how are we going to be able to see you and not everybody else in the world? Is it, are you going to be some kind of ghost that only we can see? Something like that. John Gill suggests that. Obviously, Jude is totally confused. Now, let's look at some options about, about this. How is it you're going to reveal yourself to the world? Options as to what Jude is thinking. First option, Jude, as well as the other disciples, were expecting an earthly messianic kingdom. So they couldn't understand how Jesus could reveal himself to some people in this earthly messianic kingdom, but not to everybody, because this earthly messianic kingdom was going to be glorious and worldwide. The Jews were going to rule the whole world. And how 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 were some people going to see that and not everybody else see it? Well, that's that's NIV study Bible, Gill and Clark's take on what Jude was thinking. And I think they're probably right. How's that possible? And the second option, as I mentioned, is that Jude thought that Jesus was going to be a ghost that only they could see. I don't think that's what Jude was thinking, really. Or perhaps Jude was just being modest here. He said, I can't understand how you could reveal yourself only to us lowly disciples while you ignore everybody else in the world. Well, that could be. But on the other hand, maybe he was not modest. Option A was that he was expecting an earthly messianic kingdom, and that, of course, is not modest. That was the opposite of modest. Well, it's not really clear what Jude was, why he asked this question. But now, how did Jesus answer the question? Well, he didn't directly answer it. If we go down to verse 23, the next verse, it says, Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Well, what has that got to do with how do you, how can I be, how can Jesus be revealed to the disciples but not to the world? That's a little bit of a puzzlement. Well, here's some options as to how Jesus meant to answer Jude. First option, the Holy Spirit was going to come to the disciples, not to the world. And so when Jesus talks about when he answers about keeping the word and the Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's the Holy Spirit living in the disciples and that only happens with the disciples. That doesn't happen with the world. I think that's probably the right answer. Uh, tied in with that, if we look at verse 23, he says, My Father will love, we will come to the person who obeys me and keeps my word. We will come to him and make our home with him. That means we're going to live with him. And, and it's just like... The public can't see somebody living in your house, but if you're living in a house, you can see that person. That's how the person is revealed to you and not to everybody in the world. So God the Father and God the Son are going to be living with his apostles, and that's how they're going to see him. That's how they're going to have God and Jesus revealed to them, but the world doesn't see it. The world can't know without the Holy Spirit. By the way, I failed to mention this. Why did Jude even ask that question? Probably in response to verse 19 in John 14 when Jesus said this, In a little while the world will see me no longer, but you will see me. In a little while the world will see me no longer, but you will see me. So see, there's the contrast between the unseeing world and the seeing disciples in verse 19. And so Jude says, what's going on? Don't understand that. Verse 23, I just read that. Let me read it again. Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and will, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And that's why Jesus and God are revealed to the believers and not to the world, because he's going to make our home with us. Now notice again, love and obedience. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. I can't emphasize that enough. Get rid of the romantic idea of love, the emotional idea of love. Love is doing. Love is practice. Love is keeping his word. I've already mentioned this several times before. I'm going to mention it again. John 14:15. if you love me, you will keep my commands. John 14:21. the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. John 15:10. if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Jesus is the perfect example there. He keeps the Father's commands. That's how he shows his love to the Father. Well, if Jesus is our example, we want to see how to love God. Look how Jesus loved God. He kept his commands. Even 
the command to die on a cross. 1 John 2, 5, but whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is perfected. Keep your word and you have the love of God in you completely. Now when this verse in verse 23 says, my father will come to him, when does that happen? In the form of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, John Gill says, Jameson Foss and Brown say, well, just generally in the form of the Holy Spirit, generally, whenever that might be, either one, doesn't matter. The point is, when the Holy Spirit comes to the believer, the Father and the Son remain and live in that believer. And the Father and the Son have made their home with you. They live with you. They are in you. What a privilege. Remember, the place where God lives is what? A temple. And generally, the place where a God lives is a temple. In the case of Christians, where the temple is the church, the Holy Spirit. And in Paul, I think in Corinthians, twice mentions we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. One time plural, one time single. Uh, the church collectively is a temple where God lives. But also us individual Christians, we are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit lives in us. Because God and the Father have made their home with us. John fourteen twenty four. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. The word that you hear means all the teaching that Jesus has given, of course, is... When he says it's not mine, he means it's not merely mine. But it also comes from the Father. Why? Because the Father and the Son are one. And just as he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The opposite is true. If you don't love him, you will not keep his commandments. And that's how you can tell. Look at the way people are living. If they're living like like, <laughs> living like hell, that means they love hell and they don't love Jesus. John 14, verse 25 through 26. I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, the Father will send him in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. Now, notice that it says... The Father will send the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. The Father will send the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. This verse shows that the Son is associated with the Father in sending the Holy Spirit, as the NIV study Bible and Gill point out. Let's look ahead in John 15, verse 26. When the Counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father. The one I will send, that's Jesus speaking. When the Holy Spirit comes, when the Counselor comes, the one I will send, Jesus will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father. So the Spirit, Holy Spirit comes the Father in the last part of verse 26 in John 15. And in the first part of John 15, 26, it says that I will send the Holy Spirit. So that means both the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit, QEDs, plain as day. Now, there's something interesting here. The Father sending Jesus in his name. This began a controversy that rocked the Roman Empire, split the church, the Orthodox Church in the East from the Roman Catholic Church in the West, caused all kinds of political controversies and political uproar. I learned it's called the so-called filioque controversy. Filioque means and the son in, in Latin. And what it was in the Eastern Church... The Eastern Church believed that the Father sent the Son to the world, and then the Son sends the Holy Spirit to the world. So there's a direct line, a vertical line, Father on top, Son in the middle, Holy Spirit on the bottom. Whereas the Western Church, the Catholics, they believe that you got the Father and the Son on, on the same line, uh, and then in the middle of that line, drop down to Aaron, there's the Holy Spirit comes to the earth, so the Father and the Son equally send the Holy Spirit at the same time. It doesn't go through a, a process where it goes from Father to Son to Holy Spirit like the East says, but it's the Father and the Son, Filioque, Father and the Son, send the Holy Spirit. Now you would think, what is the big deal? And I remember I heard that and I said, why in the world are human beings arguing like this? They're willing to go to war over two Latin words, over how the Holy Spirit came to the world? It's just amazing. Well, at least they took theology seriously back then, but... Unfortunately, theology got mixed up with politics, and the results were not salubrious. I remember I heard a history professor at, at my university say that you can go into a library and find shelves of books written on the Filioque controversy. I really think those boys had too much time on their hand myself. But anyway, it seems to me John 15:26 says very clearly, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit is going to proceed from the Father. So both the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit, therefore the Catholics are right, the Orthodox are wrong. I hate to stand up for Catholics because I'm not a Catholic, but I think they were right in this issue. But at any rate, the Father and the Son are tied together, the one whom the Father sent, and the Father, the one who sent him. They are in union with one another, 
and they will send the Holy Spirit to you who believe and who obey his commands. And this Holy Spirit will teach you of all things and remind you of everything I've told you. Now, of course, teaching is critical for two things, the life of the church and the writing of the New Testament. Remember, the Holy Spirit had to inspire those apostles to write the New Testament, which had not been written yet. So this is a very important statement here. I'm going to teach you all things so that you can write the Bible so that Christians 2,000 years can know what's in the Bible. And I will remind you of everything I've told you. Of course, people forget things, and they would be reminded. I w the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. What things? Here's some examples from John Gill. He will teach you about the Father. He will teach you about the Father's house, the Father's temple, the church, if you will. The the he will teach you that the Father is in Jesus, and Jesus is in the Father. He will teach you about keeping Jesus' commandments. And he will remind you of all things. Certain things would be forgotten by the disciples, as John Gill points out. For example, inattention, they weren't paying attention, or they didn't understand what Jesus said, or maybe they understood and things slipped their mind. They're human beings. Holy Spirit is going to help their human frailty. Verse 27 of John 14, peace, Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Your heart must not be troubled or fearful. <laughs> How is this the world gives? The opposite of peace, fear contention, strife, domestic violence, lawsuits, suing everybody, shooting one another up with guns. I, you know, I could go on and on. That's how the world is. But Jesus says, I'm, gonna give you, I'm not going to give you that. I'm going to give you peace. Now, the occasion that this was spoken makes this verse much more powerful when you read it. What was the occasion? Jesus was about to be murdered, and he knew it. The disciples were about to be scattered all over the place, and Jesus knew that too. But he says, hey, relax, guys. My peace I give to you. Now, peace could refer to their emotional state, but it also could refer to their salvation because we're at peace with God. We're no longer his enemies. That's my idea. I didn't read that anywhere, So, but I think that's that's probably true. He's talking about all kinds of peace, emotional peace, and also your, your soteriological peace, if you will, your peace with God, the fact that God no longer condemns you. But I really think the emphasis here is on your emotional peace here because he says your heart must not be troubled or fearful because, hey, guys, I know things are getting going to get me rough here. Things are getting to be real, really bad. But, hey, don't worry about it. I give you peace. The application of this is obvious. When things look really bad in your life, think about this verse, peace. He gave it to his disciples. He gave it to you, too, because he lives with you. He lives in you. He's made his abode. He's made his dwelling with you. Now, some people point out that he, uh, Jesus could just be using shalom, the common Jewish greeting, peace be unto you. I don't think that's true. The NIV Study Bible says that that might be, but if so, he uses the greeting in an unusual way. I don't think that's what he's saying. I'm thinking he's saying, I'm going to give you peace in the sense of emotional tranquility. This I don't believe this is just, uh, you know, you, you give somebody a peaceful greeting, you just wish peace upon the recipient like custom and polite behavior. This is not wishing something on the disciples. This was promising them and actually giving them peace. John 14:28. Jesus continues, You have heard me tell you I'm going away and I'm coming to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. Now when he says, if you love me, that word if is ambiguous. It could mean if and the contingency is maybe 1% that it's going to happen. Or if... And the contingency is 50% it's going to happen, or if it's 95% certain it's going to happen, but it ain't 100% sure yet. If it's 100% sure, it'd be sense. Well, here is, if you love me, I think it's 95%, because Jesus knows that they loved him. And he says, uh, you would have rejoiced that I'm going to the Father. Why? Now, this is an interesting phrase here. <laughs> I am going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. Than I. Why would they rejoice that Jesus was going to the Father why would they rejoice because the Father is greater than Jesus? Well, here are some options. First of all, let's take the bad option that the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Arians like to say, oh, the Father is greater than I. That means that the Father is greater in essence, in substance. He's greater in essence than Jesus. Well, that's a heresy. That's the Arian heresy that Jesus is just a junior God. Well, of course, that's not what Jesus meant. He said in John 10, 30, the Father and I are one. And how many times have we gone through here in John from chapter 5 all the way to chapter 10? Jesus is constantly saying, the one who sent me, the Father and I are one. The Father and I are one. What the Father does, I do. The Father works a miracle, I work a miracle. The Father judges, I judge too. You know, he, he, he obviously was God. You've got to be a, a dumb heretic not to believe that, okay? 
And notice that Jesus also said, I am. How many times he said, I am? I've mentioned that, you know, to I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I am. He's using the term that was used that means Yahweh. In the Old Testament, Yahweh means I am. He's identifying himself with the I am of the burning bush in the Old Testament when Jesus, when God identified himself to Moses. And besides, the Pharisees tried to stone him for blasphemy all the time because they knew they weren't stupid. They knew he was claiming equality with a father. So, Arians and Jehovah's Witnesses love to quote this. They do not know what they are talking about. So that's not, not, not what it means. What it means, according to the NIV Study Bible and John Gill, is Jesus is referring to his incarnate state. Because the Father is greater than I in my incarnate state. I in my flesh am going to be whipped, beaten, brutalized, put up on a cross, nailed up on a cross, spit upon, mocked. But God's greater than all that. He's going to take care of that. He's going to bring judgment on the people who did it in AD 70. Going to wipe out Jerusalem. He's going to take care of that. And he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And the church is going to thrive because he has got a lot more power than I have in my incarnate state. I think that answers the question perfectly. Now, here's another option, which I don't really believe Jesus is talking about here. Uh, John Gill says that the Father is greater in function than me. In other words, the Father leads and the Son obeys. I, I don't have any problem with that. I think you can prove that. That's called the economic subordination of the Son to the Father. And I know there's a huge theological controversy. This is what Reformed people like to do. They like to get into, into theological arguments about is the Son eternally subordinate to the Father in his eternal state, or did the economic subordination of the Son to the Father only happened during his incarnate state. I'm not going to get into that because I haven't I haven't waded into that controversy yet. But we know that when Jesus was in his incarnate state, at least, let's put it that way, the Father told him what to do, and Jesus prayed to the Father and asked him what to do. John Gill says, with regard to his office as mediator, in which he was the Father's servant, was set up and sent forth by him, acted under him, and in obedience to him. All right, now all that believes that's true, but I don't believe that's what Jesus is referring to here. I think he's referring to the fact that that God the Father is in his spirit is spiritual spiritually in heaven and all powerful and not subject to the to the blows that Jesus is going to receive in his incarnate state. I think that's what he's talking about, and therefore that's why you should rejoice. Again, the whole context here: Jesus is trying to encourage his disciples, and he says, "Look, the Father is greater than I. I am weak in my human flesh, and I'm going to be beat. But by golly, remember." I and the Father am one, and the Father is greater than I, and he's not going to get beaten, and he is going to win, and he is going to deliver you. So cheer up. Jesus says in this verse 28, I am going away, and I am coming to you. When is he coming? I've already mentioned this in another previous verse, but I'm sure it means by his resurrection. It doesn't mean end of the world, because he said in a little while I'm coming to you. He repeats that. I'm coming to you. And it means in the post-resurrection appearances. After he's resurrected, he's going to see him again. We go to John 14, verse 29. I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you may believe. You may believe. And what is the it? Before it happens, before he goes away by dying, I'm leaving you and nobody else can go and then I'm coming back to you. Jesus tells them all this stuff about his death and resurrection. He knows they don't believe him now, but when they see it, they're going to believe it. And this is true so many times. And when you, for example, when I had trouble believing the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, but then when I realized that it had already happened and that Jesus was referring to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 87, I said, oh yeah, it fits, it fits, it fits, it fits. Prophecy is best fulfilled after it takes place because then you can see it. That's why those Old Testament prophets didn't really understand all their prophecies. They had to examine the prophecies. They said, God said this, but what does that mean? Well, after it happens, for example, the 70 years in Babylon and all, after it happens, it's real easy to see. A lot easier to see, but if it hasn't happened yet, we don't know. So anyway, Jesus, applying that principle, says, hey, you guys might not believe now, but after it happens, you are going to believe. John 14, 30 through 31. I will not talk with you much longer because the ruler of the world is coming he has no power over me. On the contrary, I am going away so that the world may know that I love the Father. Just as the Father commanded me, so I do. Get up. Let's leave this place. All right, there's a lot in these few verses. I will not talk with you much longer. Why? Because this is Thursday night. He's going to be killed Friday Friday morning. So we're, not, we're talking about less than a day. Yeah, he was not going to be talking with them much longer. He says the rule of this world is coming. That would be Satan is coming to kill him. But then he says, yeah, the rule of this world is coming, but he has no power over me because he's going to kill me, but I'm going to rise again from the dead. 
Notice I've emphasized over and over the way you love the Father is by keeping his commands, the way you love Jesus is by keeping his commands. Notice that Jesus is our example. He did exactly the same thing. He says in verse 20, in verse 31, just as the Father commanded me, so I do. Jesus showed his love for the Father by doing what Jesus, what, what the Father commanded. He's our example. If we want to love the Father, shouldn't we do what Jesus did to love the Father? Jesus loved the Father by keeping his commands. So therefore, we love the Father by keeping the Father's commands. And of course, Jesus kept a very hard command, which was to go up on a cross and die. This idea about the rule of the world is coming. I had somebody ask me, in a, a Chinese student, I was doing a long distance Bible study, and she asked me, uh, I thought Jesus was the rule of the world. That's a very perceptive question. A thought might not have occurred to you. It's occurred to uh, to me, at least. How can Jesus be the rule of the world and the devil be the rule of the world at the same time? Well, let's look at some scriptures here in Ephesians 2.2, Paul speaking, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercised authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedience. Well, that's talking about Satan and the ruler who exercises authority is the spirit now working where? Working in the disobedient. That's how he's ruler of the world. He's ruler of not of the whole planet, but as ruler of ungodly people. The word world oftentimes refers to ungodly people. For example, that's a worldly person. Well, that's where the devil's ruling in the, in the spirit of the disobedience. But it doesn't mean the devil has any kind of sovereign power over the course of world events. First, Second Corinthians 4.4, 4, in their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of whom? Of the unbelievers, so they cannot see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. So at that time, the God of this age uh, was blinded the minds of unbelievers. That's who he has charge of over his unbelievers. But believers, no. He doesn't have authority over believers. John 12:31. now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. This is referring to when Jesus dies on the cross. The ruler's coming, but I'm going to rise again from the dead, and he will be cast out of his power. Da, 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 da. So we need to remember, you know, when we say that the devil is the ruler of the world, we need to limit his jurisdiction just a little bit more than we tend to do. He does not have power over Christians. He does not have jurisdiction over Christians. Ladies and gentlemen, I have finished this somewhat long audio. I hope you enjoyed it. Next audio, we will take a look at Jesus' discourse to his disciples as he leaves the Last Supper and he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane right before his crucifixion. His discourse on the way to Gethsemane. Next audio. Hope you tune in for that one. Hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>